prayer is essentially acknowledged helplessness. And so that's the way one pastor defines prayer. Prayer is essentially acknowledged helplessness. It's coming before God and saying, there's nothing I can do here. There is no change I can bring. There's no way I can change these circumstances. And it's admitting your helpless situation. It's acknowledging it before the Lord. And so, so let's use this simple definition of acknowledged helplessness to go through this passage as we first look at the helplessness of Hezekiah and the people of Judah, and we look at how he acknowledges his helplessness. And then we consider if perhaps there is an answer from God. First, notice the, the helplessness. Even, it, even as we turn from chapter 17 and the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel into chapter 18, there is hope because finally there is a righteous king, a king who doesn't merely love God but, but actually goes about destroying idolatry. Hezekiah is the king that Judah truly needs. He is the, the righteous king, and yet... The warning of the destruction of Israel is right in front of him. Because chapter 18 reminds us of why the Assyrians deported the people of Israel into exile. Look at verse 12 back in chapter 18. So we didn't read this yet. This is background in chapter 18, verse 12. The exile happened because the people of Israel had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant. All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded... They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. And so, the warning of what has just taken place at the hand of the Assyrian king is laid before Hezekiah and the people. And then the very next thing that happens then in verse 13 is that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Now, the king of Assyria, the great king, the one who has just trampled the entire known world, no one can stand his way as, as Assyria steamrolls its way through Palestine. City after city is destroyed. The nation of Israel is no more. Samaria has been turned to rubble, and now will Judah be destroyed? And so the, the king of Assyria sends his messenger, his, his chief commander, his official, to come and speak with King Hezekiah's officials. So he comes to, to mock them. He mocks them in verse 19 that, that the great king, the king of Assyria, asks that question in verse 19 of chapter 18, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? Who are you trusting? What, what kind of hope might you have when the great king of Assyria rolls into town? It's the, it's the mocking question that the, that the servant of the king of Assyria brings. The, the, the people, actually, the, the representatives of Hezekiah, beg him to stop speaking in Hebrew. Stop talking in Hebrew. Could you, let's, let's switch to the, the formal language of the empire. Let's, let's speak to one another in Aramaic. I could not remember the name of that language in the first service. I mean, I ran through Akkadian and, and Assyrian. And, um, so, so you get it. It's Aramaic. That's the, the lingua franca of the, of the empire, the, the, the language that everyone understands. And, and the guy says, no, I'm going to keep shouting in Hebrew so that everybody sitting on the city walls of Jerusalem knows that there is no hope left. I'm not going to negotiate with you in, in this foreign language. I'm going to keep just mocking you in your own language. And that's the, the description we, we hear in, verse, in our chapter, chapter 19, when we hear in verse 12, the king again say, ask this question, did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? And then he just starts running through a list. Some of these happened 
not during his reign, but the reign of, of, of kings of Assyria that had come before. He's just mocking them. Who are you going to trust? You're going to trust your God? Your God has no hope against the great king, the king of Assyria. And so Hezekiah stands in the same position that King Hosea stood in Samaria in the chapter before. Helpless. There is nothing he can do. Actually, it, it's, it, as, you, as you go back and read these chapters, the, the king of Assyria just mocks him. He says, you know what? I'll give you thousands of chariots. All you have to do is just put guys in them. I'll let you fight me with my own weapons. And Hezekiah can't take him up on the offer because he doesn't even have 2,000 soldiers to put in them. I mean, he is, the, the, the king of Assyria is mocking Judah. He's mocking King Hezekiah. He's mocking the Lord. And so there is no hope because... Look out across history. There is no one. There is nothing that can stand up against the king of Assyria. There are no gods that could do this. And in one sense, this is a political challenge, but it's much more than that. This is a religious confrontation. The gods of the nations haven't been able to win, so your little god isn't going to win. And I get it, Hebrews. You think you have the only god that there is. That's the, the biblical worldview, is there is only one true God. But the king of Assyria mocks him. Now, today, you and I don't probably fear being mocked as biblical, uh, believers in this biblical claim that there is only one true God. We don't fear being mocked by a, a king who is surrounding us with, with swords. But perhaps, perhaps we do fear being cast aside, cast aside as foolish. Or maybe, maybe this is actually the objection you have about Christianity. The Christianity's claim to be the to have the one true God, to have the one true message, just strikes you as arrogant or provincial or, or narrow-minded. And you think, how dare you go around telling other people that they're wrong? So you're telling me that I'm wrong for telling other people they're wrong. I'm wrong to tell other people they're wrong, but you're not wrong to tell me I'm wrong? I mean, do, you, do you see the, the problem? is we can't merely say that to, to, to say someone, because, because it, is, it is not just this sort of comparative religious question of, well, which among the religions, and let's, let's review them. No, to make the, the Christian truth claim that there is only one true God, there is only one way of salvation, is to tell people that any other way of living, any other belief system is wrong. But don't you understand that's how this conversation would start? Whether you agree with me or not, one of us, or really honestly, both of us, have to say to one another, I think you were wrong. And so we'd have to actually look for the truth. It's not merely, you, you can't merely keep an open-minded position that, well, everybody can be right. Because that leads to nonsense, and, and, and there's no possibility of communication. And so, so we'd actually have to look for truth. We'd have to look for the declaration of truth in God's word. When we hear the king say that there is only one true God, the King Hezekiah. Now, Christians, the, the reason that, that, some of, that some of our friends sitting here struggle with this Christian claim is because sometimes you and I, when we say there is one way, we don't offer it gently as there is one way of salvation. There is a, a true God. What you and I do is we act like jerks. And we say, look at how right I am, and you are all wrong. And so, I think there is a lesson for us to learn here about even the way we would speak. The way we might speak to, to offer the hope of salvation to others, humbly and gently. Yes, at times we have to forcefully acknowledge that we are telling other people they're wrong. 
But that's necessary in conversation, in any conversation. There is one true God, but, but for Hezekiah, if he trusts in himself, he's completely helpless. So if prayer is acknowledged helplessness, but let's look at, at how Hezekiah acknowledges his situation. Now, if we go back to chapter 18, despite the fact that Hezekiah is introduced to us as finally the true king who destroys idolatry, Hezekiah's first strategies to deal with the threat of Assyria are political. Back in chapter 18, verses 13, 14, and 15, he decides, you know what? Let me make a deal with the king of Assyria. Let me go into the temple, peel out all the gold and silver that's in there. I'll give it all to him. I'll pay him off. He'll march away. And actually, it, it works. It works that the, the, the king of Assyria leaves, but then he comes back. He wants more because the problem with paying off an evil tyrant is how much will it cost you? It's going to keep costing you more and more. And so when the king of Assyria comes back, we also see another way in which then Hezekiah tried to, to solve the problem on his own. Look at verse 21 of chapter 18. Even as the king of Assyria mocks him, it shows us that Hezekiah was trying to trust, on, trust Egypt, the other great power in the world. Look, now you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all who depend on him. So the alliance with Assyria doesn't work. Maybe an alliance against Assyria with Egypt will work, but, but these don't work. The mocking continues. The cities of Judah continue to be destroyed, and Jerusalem is threatened. And finally then, when we turn to, to chapter 19, we have Hezekiah hearing the blasphemy of the king of Assyria. He tears his clothes as a symbol of, of repentance, of sorrow and sadness, and then he sends his, his messengers to go and find the word of the Lord. Now, to do so, he had to go find the prophet Isaiah. He had to track him down to, to find out what does the Lord say about this situation. But then we also have, even, even as the king of Assyria in chapter 19 just continues to mock Hezekiah, essentially saying, you know, let's, you know, I'm going to, we'll play to 11. I'll spot you 10 points and I'll play with one hand behind my back. And you're still going to lose because nobody can beat the king of Assyria. You want to, let's just list the, the names of everyone else I've beaten already. I'm undefeated. And undefeated for centuries. You think you can win this? And so Hezekiah being mocked then, we find this powerful prayer, which we read this morning. In verse 14 of chapter 19, Hezekiah now has in his hands a letter from the messengers. These words in, in writing now in front of him, the mocking blasphemy of the king of Assyria, the threats of destruction. And so Hezekiah goes into the temple, he spreads out this letter, and he prays to the Lord. And then listen again to the power of this prayer. One of the commentators on this passage says, just verse 15 is a three-point sermon. I mean, his, just the opening phrase of his prayer it explodes the majesty and the power and the authority of God. Listen, listen to Hezekiah's prayer again in, in verse 15. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Do you hear the desperation, the acknowledged desperation and helplessness in Hezekiah's prayer? 
He knows that there is nothing he can do. He's actually tried everything he can think of, and nothing can stop Assyria except the Lord. The Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim. He's there in the temple, the symbolic place where God's presence resides over the Ark of the Covenant. But it's a, it's a picture of God's heavenly throne room. God reigns in heaven. He is the one who is the, the God over all the kingdoms of the earth, not merely over Judah or Israel, but even over Assyria. He is the Lord. And he is the one who, who more than that made heaven and earth. Those are just the opening words of Hezekiah's prayer. A prayer of desperation, of acknowledged helplessness, where he prays out to the Lord and he prays for the glory of the Lord. He's not merely praying, God, please, 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 please save us because we're so good. We deserve to be. No, what, is, what does he say? Look at verse 19. Now, O Lord, deliver us from his hand. Why? Look at, again, verse 19, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. See, Hezekiah's prayer is a prayer for the glory of God, the spread of the gospel, the hope that is found in the one true God, the only true God, because all the other gods, they're merely wood and stone carved out by human hands. The reason those gods couldn't stop the king of Assyria is they were powerless, but the true God has power. And so do you and I, do we follow the pattern of Hezekiah? When we face a a situation of, of desperation, do we turn to God to listen to his word? For Hezekiah, that meant finding the prophet. For you and I, we have quicker access to the word of God. Do you and I follow the pattern of, of Hezekiah when, when things appear impossible of coming to God in prayer, of pleading with him, of, of praying that his glory would be seen? And that's the pattern even that Jesus has given to us in the Lord's Prayer. We pray for the glory of God to be known by all, for his will to be done even in our lives. Now, I, 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 I saw that there's a, a website where you can go and get proxy prayers prayed on your behalf. So for the busy person who doesn't have time to stop and pray but doesn't want to give up on prayer altogether, you can, for a monthly fee, have not even someone else pray for you. The the great thing is it's a computer-generated voice that will pray on your behalf. But God will surely hear that too. And, and, and we rightly chuckle at the, the foolishness, the, the clear the mocking of, of true prayer, and the money-making intents, probably, of the, the founders of this website. And so we rightly chuckle. But is the pattern in your life any better? Yeah, you might not be foolish enough to lay out a monthly fee for somebody else to pray, but is your prayer life any stronger? Or do you, like me, be, immediately think, well, you know what? Here's a, here's a problem in front of me. I can fix this. Let me, let me think of the great ways that Kevin can be the solution to all of life's problems. Or do you think to yourself, you know what? Before I waste any time with prayer, because I'm not really sure prayer does anything, you know what? I need a lot of people to know what distress that I'm in. And so rather than go to God in prayer, we, we, we go to others to complain. See, is, is your pattern really any better than the person who pays a monthly fee and hopes that maybe God would hear? See, the pattern that, Hezekiah, that this passage offers us, what is true prayer? It's acknowledged helplessness. It's coming to God to hear his word and say, this is what I know to be true. It's coming to God to plead for his glory to be on display in your life, to fully commit yourself to his authority in your life. Prayer 
is essentially acknowledged helplessness. But still, we're, we're left with the question. The question that, the, the, the plea that, that Hezekiah has, will the Lord listen? Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. So we can acknowledge our helplessness, but unless there is someone powerful enough to respond, then prayer is merely foolishness. And so that's what we see, though, in this passage. We have God's response. Look back at, verses, uh, at, at verse 5. When, when Hezekiah goes to, to Isaiah to hear the word of the Lord, this is what, in, in verse 6, this is what Isaiah says. Tell your master this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I mean, I can imagine Hezekiah wanting to sort of stop. All right, God, open your eyes, and let's look at the circumstances. We've just heard the report that my fortified city of Lachish has been destroyed. The, the city destroyed. The, the king of Assyria is moving on. God, you know what happened in Samaria. You know the king of Assyria's battle record. God, are, do not be afraid. And it's because God himself will intervene. God has heard the blasphemy of the king of Assyria. And so he's going to put a, a spirit in me. He's going, to, he's going to send him away. He's going to destroy the king. See, because when the king of Assyria shows up for this game, mocking Hezekiah, I'll beat you with a hand tied behind my back. What he doesn't realize is he's not fighting. He's not playing this game against Hezekiah. He's playing the game against the Lord. But you see, Hezekiah's prayer is a picture of faith because nothing in his circumstances has changed except he has heard the word of the Lord. It is still entirely a promise of what will come. The king is still surrounding him. His entire kingdom is threatened to be destroyed. All Hezekiah has is a promise, a promise of what God will do. And so this should be an encouragement to us. Even when we look at our circumstances and we think things don't seem to be changing, I, 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 you know, I, I just think of the, the conversations I've had with, with you this week, the, the prayers we've prayed together, the sorrow at loved ones lost to death, the tragedies of, of, of news of illness continuing, the pleas that you have for, for the loved ones that you have who have not accepted Christ, and you've prayed day after day, year after after year. When my community group gathers tonight, there are certain prayers I know we will pray together because they should be at the top of our list. Those pleas for the ones we love to come to faith in Christ. And yet, it feels like at times nothing has changed. I've acknowledged my helplessness, but I don't see any change. So does God hear us? Will God answer us? Can we trust in the promises God has given to us? And so that's what happens. Isaiah, Hezekiah comes to pray, and then Isaiah speaks the word of the Lord. And, and as we read the rest of this chapter, I want you to hear the mocking tone of the Lord against the idolatry and blasphemy of the king of Assyria. How God himself steps in and says, you want to play? Let's go. Listen to the word of God as I continue to read in chapter 19, beginning at verse 20. After the prayer 
of Hezekiah, then Isaiah, son of Amoz, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord. And you have said, With my many chariots I ascended the heights of the mountains to the utmost heights of Lebanon, and I have cut down its tallest pines, the choicest of its pines. I have reached its remotest parts, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. That you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I, I know where you stay and where you come and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be a sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant in the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a siege, with, a, with shield or build a siege ram against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nishrach, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Asherhadon, his son, succeeded him as king. When you go into battle, you need to know who you're fighting against. Hezekiah can be defeated. Hezekiah's God cannot. God heard the blasphemy of Assyria. This wasn't mere political arrogance that he can go wherever he wants, he can do whatever he wants, he can destroy anyone. This was blasphemy. He called God no God at all. He denied the truth revealed to us in God's world, the truth revealed to us through God's word, that God is the true God. And did you notice the authority with which God spoke? The power of this message, even as he mocks the king of Assyria. Look at verse 25. Have you not heard? Weren't you there at the very beginning when I put this plan into place, O great king, the king of Assyria? Because do you see what God is saying from before the beginning of time? Long ago I ordained it. In the days of old I planned this. You are doing what I want you to do. 
You, yes, are a tool of judgment, expanding your empire for your own purposes, but bringing judgment against Israel for my purposes. But you will not destroy the promise I have made to my people. I'm keeping the promise of God. And so this predestined plan of God, which at times this, this theological doctrine can sort of bring us up short of, of, well, how could that possibly be? But do you notice how it's being used here? The way it's used throughout Scripture, as a comfort to the people of God. The fact that God has a plan and is at work should give you and I comfort. We do not need to be afraid because God is at work. The circumstances around me don't nullify the promises of God. They cannot destroy the promises of God because God brings rescue. Look at verses 30 and 31, that a remnant will be saved in Judah to take root, to bear fruit. God will rescue a remnant here out of, out of Jerusalem and out of Mount Zion. He receives, he, he keeps the survivors. And he does it, verse 34 tells us, for his own sake. Remember, Hezekiah's prayer was, God, do this so that you would be glorified. That's why God does it, for his own sake and for the sake of David, my servant, verse 34 tells us, because of the promise God has made. And again, the power of this, I mean, it it is shown to us at the end of verse 31, that, that powerful phrase, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal, the determined purpose, the unstoppable power of the Lord, Yahweh, the King of hosts. That's what the Lord Almighty means. He's the one with with angelic armies behind him. And how many angels does he even need for this battle? He just won. Just won. He can destroy the, 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 the armies of the kings of Assyria. That's how powerful this God is. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And when you and I hear that phrase... We should hear in it an even bigger promise than is made merely here to Hezekiah of a rescue of Jerusalem. This this chapter, this section of the book of 2 Kings is is repeated for us in in the the book of Isaiah in the Bible. If if you were to flip to to Isaiah 37 and read it, you would think, didn't I just read this in 1 Kings 19? You know, there are a couple of verses that that are a little bit different. Well, it's because this is Isaiah's ministry. This is the time period in which Isaiah prophesied, and so for him to use the word of God already declared as part of his own prophetic writing makes sense to us. And so when he says in Isaiah 37, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, you and I have actually already, would have already heard that word, that phrase in the prophecy of Isaiah. Not merely in chapter 37, but in Isaiah chapter 9 a passage familiar to us because of its Christmas promise. See, the zeal of the Lord Almighty to accomplish God's purposes doesn't merely speak of the rescue of Jerusalem, but of the promise God made to David that there would come a rescuer. It's the promise of Christmas. Hear the words of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You hear the power of the promise of God, a power which transcends our circumstances. 
as you and I in tears plead before the Lord, as you and I long for his power to be on display in our life, you and I still have the promise, the promise that there is a king, Jesus, who reigns on the throne forever. And this was accomplished not by Hezekiah's great plan, but in spite of Hezekiah, merely because God is the God who for his own sake, for his own glory, for the sake of the promise he had made to David, God is the one who will keep his promises. And so, yes, you and I should follow the pattern of Hezekiah, of coming to hear the word of God and coming to pray before the Lord, acknowledging our helplessness in our prayers and trusting in the power of the promise of God. We hear it again. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this.